sometimes we don't realize it, but I think it's true in most categories of our lives that our past experiences shape our present reality. What I mean by that is that how we have learned things in the past or the experiences that we have have shaped how we see everything that happens in the present and even in times how we think about the future. You know, I think this is true about us in our personal lives. We, we see that all the time, that if we had an experience at a restaurant that wasn't very good, we're not going to go back there again. And we see it in our society, uh, how people think a certain way because of experiences they've had. And we see it in our history, that how things have unfolded, they seem to unfold again, or we think through those things differently. And we see it in our churches, that how we have learned or experienced things has shaped how we do things in the present. And sometimes we don't realize, especially in our spiritual beliefs, in our churches and in our Christian life, that art, literature, and even other people have been more of an influence on our beliefs than what the Bible says itself. Sometimes we have been more influenced by a beautiful painting an epic poem, or even a sermon that we heard long ago or someone else heard and it influenced them and they influenced us. I think that's especially true in the church today. Many of us, maybe we haven't even heard other people's sermons or seen other people's works of art or read their books, but we are more and more influenced by what people have said in the past and it shaped what we believe now. One of those sermons in particular that has shaped what we believe now has really influenced people for the last few hundred years. In the 1700s, there was this event called the Great Awakening. Some of you might be familiar with it. It took place in England as well as the English colonies in the U.S. And what it was was basically a revival in the church. In the U.S., most people associate that revival with a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an Anglican minister, so he was a preacher in an Anglican church. But he also traveled around by horseback, and he would travel to areas where people were, and he would preach in the open fields or in the, the town centers and share Jesus with those people. Edwards was really frustrated that people didn't really take their faith seriously. He found that, that Christians were just lazy in their faith, that they didn't really act on what they believe or behave in a manner that should reflect the beliefs of the Bible. And so in July of 1731, he wrote and shared a sermon that has influenced us today more than we realize. Some of you may have heard this sermon before or even just heard the name. Some of you might not have heard of it at all, but it has shaped Christian beliefs for a long time. And that sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon that he shared both uh, vocally, uh, where he shared it, his words speaking to his church and then to communities around, was also written down and shared as like a pamphlet that people would pass around. And his main point was this, is that God was angry with us because we were sinners and some of us are going to hell because of it. He used these tactics of fear of what could be 
to influence and convert people to follow Jesus. Some of you have had that experience yourself. You were you started coming to church or you started uh, believing in Jesus because you were afraid of what your eternal life would be like. You were afraid of hell. The problem with this sermon is not the whole thing. In fact, Edwards was really right in a lot of ways that God is angry. He is angry at sin and that people sin. Where he was mistaken was that object of the anger. Uh, that the anger wasn't really about the people, but about the sin. And so he talked a lot about God's wrath coming on people. And so as he was saying it would be coming on people, and they would be destined to hell, there started to be change in their lives to try and be more and more biblically sound, uh, Christian-based in their attitudes in the world. This sermon developed a thought for many people for centuries to come, that God was angry, that God was spewing out his wrath on people. Well, like I said, some of the stuff he says in there is absolutely true, but he misses the point on the character of God and the wrath of God. So what is the wrath of God? I think this is a term maybe some of you have heard. Maybe you've heard it in popular media. Maybe it's been in a movie or in a song or, or maybe it's even been in church. And yet there are those who doubt this is the wrath of God. That's wrath of God money. Blood, bullets, wrath of God. That's his style. For a long time, it was something a lot of Christians and pastors like me would talk about a lot. They would talk about how God was angry, just like Jonathan Edwards. They would talk about how you're a sinner and you're going to hell. But they mistake that what exactly the wrath of God is. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The Apostle Paul started his letter to this church in Rome, and a key point of it is that the wrath of God is being revealed. So what is this wrath? Well, let's talk first about what the wrath of God is not. A lot of us, when we hear that, we think of anger, for sure. That God's just angry, and he's emotional, and he's sharing that anger. Maybe we've had experiences with ourselves where we have gotten so angry we just explode in emotion or had someone else do that to us. We get this picture that that's what God's like. He's just angry and waiting to pounce. But that's not it at all. It's further from the truth than you realize. The wrath of God is not an emotional response or an angry frame of mind. And it is definitely not part of God's character, meaning it's not something intrinsic to the person of God. So that's what the wrath of God is not. What it is, is God's settled response from his holiness to his opposition of evil. 
So it's the reality that God is holy, perfect, other, different than all of everything. And evil is, well, evil. And so his response to evil is wrath. C.H. Dodds, who was an author, a theologian a long time ago, in the early 1900s, wrote that God's wrath is the effect of human sin. And that mercy is not the effect of human goodness, but actually mercy is the inherent, is inherent in the character of God. So God's wrath isn't part of his character. It's a result of a reality, and that is sin. So there is a consequence to sin, and wrath is part of it. Like I said, it's not an emotional outburst. It is not a, an angry spewing of fire or flames. It is a reality that God is opposed to evil, and that demands a response. So the Bible does talk quite a bit, actually, about the wrath of God. But the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about God being angry at humanity as much as we may think. Moreover, actually, it speaks of God's hatred towards sin and our strange love for it as people. Also, what it talks about is not God's character being of anger or wrath, but actually it's of holiness and love. And it is out of the character of holiness and love that God desires for us to stay away from sin and to be with him. But we don't usually choose that option. We may think of God's wrath as this outburst of like, you know, lightning bolts coming from heaven and, and fire and brimstone and all these pictures that we get. But the reality is that God's wrath isn't actually that dramatic at all. In fact, it's a much calmer, subtle response that is much more devastating than we realize. God's wrath is that he lets us do what we want. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul continues in that section a little later on. And he says this starting in verse 28. He starts to give an explanation of some of the realities of people's decisions to go away from God and behave in a manner that might be culturally acceptable, but not his way. And he says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile, so they being us who have decided to love sin more than we love God, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do so that they do what ought not to be done so as these people as well us in general humanity decided that you know god's way isn't what we want we want to do our own thing it says well yeah so as they themselves kind of embrace this depravity god gives them over to it and they just do what they want they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, 
God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, meaning like nobody's done it before, but they'll find a way to do it. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I can almost guarantee you, if you take the time to read this section of Scripture, there's something there that if you really self-reflect, go, oh, I think he just listed me here. Many of us, I would dare say all of us, sin in some way, meaning that out of us we do, we act in a certain way that's contrary to God's design for us, contrary to God's desire for us, and we don't always realize it. It doesn't change what God has asked of us. It doesn't change how God has made us. It's just what we do. And Paul is saying, well, there's a wrath that's being revealed because of it. God's shown us how to be. God's shown us what to do. But we keep choosing something else. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So not only do they say, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it, they say, way to go. Keep going. Paul's point is this, is that we at some point keep making decisions to go against God that we stop realizing in some ways we're going against God. We just think it's the right thing to do. And it's not. God has given us a general revelation, meaning like his creation, so how the world is ordered, just being human. And then a specific revelation, scripture and the person of Jesus, to inform us of what it means to be a human being who follows him. To be who we were meant to be in the beginning, and sin entered the picture and ruined it. And Paul is saying that God has made this clear to us, and he's given us this opportunity to go, do we follow you, God, or do we follow our own desire? And he says, more often than not, we say, well, I really like sin much more than I like God. And because of it, because of it, God lets us do what we want, even though it's not what's best for us. Think of it like this. Some of us could be saying like, well, why would God let us sin if it's just going to lead to destruction? You know, why would he allow me to do these things if he really loved me so much as you're saying, Rob? Well, think of it like this. Some of you have kids. Some of you have been around kids. Kids don't always make the best decisions. Most of us have had an experience in our life where our parents told us not to do something. And most of us have had an experience in life where we did that very thing we weren't supposed to. So imagine this. You have a child, or you're with a child, maybe it's a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, and they're really fascinated with your hot stove. What are you going to say to them? Likely you'll say, don't touch the stove. You'll burn yourself. And you think that's it. And they come back and they're looking at the stove and you're thinking, oh, they're thinking about touching it again. And you say, don't touch the stove. You'll get really hurt by it. And you leave the kitchen. Maybe you're doing something. And you come back and there's this wild scream because the child touched the stove. There are consequences to the actions we choose. We might not think there's going to be consequences, but there are. 
And you might think, well, you know, you should be hovering over that child waiting to grab their hand before they touch the stove. But that's not the way the world works, and nor should it be. As we've all experienced in life, we are given the freedom to make decisions. We don't always make the right ones, and there are consequences to it. God allows us to choose his way or our way. And if our way is aligned with sin, there are consequences to it. So God's wrath is being revealed to us all the time because he allows us to choose things that are actually harming us much more than we realize. There is nothing good about sin. There's never going to be anything good about sin. And yes, God is angry that we choose sin, something that is despicable, corrupt, deprived over him. But there's good news. And the good news is this. That as I said, wrath is not a character trait of God. It is a reality. It is an outcome of actually the good character traits he has of holiness, love, and goodness. And that wrath is not an emotional response that God has to us making a mistake. In fact, the character trait of God that gets talked about the most when it comes to anger is that God is slow to anger. You might not realize this, but if you read your Old Testament, so the beginning stories of God, and you read the stories of God creating the world, and there's Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve sin, and Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and then Adam and Eve's kids, one of them kills each other, and then he's cast out of the city, and progressing, and there's like the flood, and there's this Tower of Babel, and then there's Abraham. So really quick overview of the first 11 chapters there. You might not realize this, but if you read your scripture, if you read all through Genesis, And if you know those stories in Genesis, there's some crazy stuff about people pretending their wives are their sisters and all kinds of things. God never gets angry, or it never says God gets angry at his people. The first time God gets angry is much later. There are all kinds of things that happen, but the characterization of anger as a response is not there. Yes, if we talk about it, we can talk about the flood, and how God kind of uh, wipes out creation to try to start over. But anger is not how it's described. Anger comes much later. Many, many years, it seems, if we follow the story of Scripture. So the way people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament talk about God is that he is slow to anger. Like David, King David. Some of you know his story. David, who was called by God to be the king, and he was the king, then sins... He ends up getting a man killed because he slept with his wife and messes everything up. He goes back to God, and one of the things that he says to God is in Psalm 103 that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we look at that and we think slow to anger like it takes a long time, but the beauty of Hebrew is that so many of the words are visual representations. And the word slow to anger, what it actually says is God is long in the nose. 
And that might sound silly, but maybe you've had this experience. You get really, really angry and your face burns with anger. It turns red. Well, when God is experiencing that which would make us angry and that which makes him angry, meaning sin, it takes a long time for his face to burn red because his nose is so long. To be slow to anger is to be someone who is long in the nose. That's a beautiful image that seems so strange that God is not someone who quickly responds in anger. He's not like me who might have an outburst when they get upset at something. He's not like you who might have an outburst when you're cut off in traffic. He is slow to anger. He is long in the nose. It takes a long time for anger to come from God, meaning there are many opportunities for us to go back to him before this wrath that's being revealed takes its toll on us. The wrath of God is real. Some churches, they talk about it a lot. Maybe we don't talk about it enough. There are consequences to sin, an eternal separation from God. But the good news is God is slow to anger. And in his slowness to anger provides us with an opportunity not to ignore him, but to cling to him. To know that in Jesus, God's wrath was satisfied. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the penalty for sin was paid. You've been justified by the act of Jesus on the cross. That God in himself, in his goodness, in his mercy, in his character of love and holiness, found a way to deal with sin, and that is Jesus. But you still need to choose between sin and God's grace. For some of us, maybe we need to choose that for the first time. The reality is that God's wrath is real, that there is a potential for eternal separation from God and goodness called hell. For some of us, we need to turn to him and to life for the first time in Jesus. For some of us, we need to do that for the hundredth, thousandth, who knows how many times. And the great news is that he is slow to anger, So you can, and you can turn to him today. My prayer for you is that when we talk about something like the wrath of God, you don't fixate on what people have told you, what people have thought. That is not true. God does not hate you. God is not angry at you. But he sure does hate sin, and he's angry at it. But thankfully, in his slowness to anger, in his grace, in his mercy. He gives you the opportunity to turn to him, to be with him, and as Jesus says, experience life in all of its fullness, not just in eternity, but right now, through Christ. I'm going to pray for us. And my prayer for us is that we turn to the God who is good, the God who we know through Jesus, who died for our sins, who rose again, so that we may have life eternal and to its fullness. I pray you turn to him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the second, 
who knows how many times. But from now and for every day to come, you keep turning to him and away from the wrath that is real. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who hates evil. You don't tolerate it. That while it may seem like that to us when we see so many things going wrong, you are patient that we can make the choices to turn back to you. That you give us a second, third, fourth, one hundredth chance to know the truth about you, that you are the God who is merciful and loving, slow to anger, and we can live like you call us to. I thank you for the truth of that and that for you, how you've inspired some people long ago like Jonathan Edwards or people today who want others to know the goodness of you in their lives. I thank you for them and I pray that we know that goodness and through the power of your Holy Spirit that we are open to the reality of sin and that we do what we can to move away from sin and move towards you. God, you say through Paul that the wrath of you, the wrath of God, is being revealed. Some of us are experiencing that now. We don't even realize it. We don't even realize that the suffering we experience is based on the reality that we choose to do things different than how you have modeled and expressed is best for us. Help us to move from those choices to the choice of you, Jesus, to see your death and resurrection as the hope that is offered to us so that we can know life and life eternal here and forever by living in such a way that acknowledges the truth of who you are, God, the truth of Scripture, and influences others to know that love you give us so freely as our God. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.